It can happen without us ever intending it. Something about the way we teach is leaving some of our students behind. In today's episode, Mark Hofer shares how he implements universal design for learning in his teaching so that all students have the opportunity to learn. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm thrilled today to have Mark Hofer on the show, and he's going to be introducing us and me to something called Universal Design for Learning. He is an associate professor of educational technology in the School of Education at the College of William and Mary. He's also the associate dean for teacher education and professional services. And welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Bonnie. I'm so excited to be with you today. I've enjoyed listening to your podcast for a long time, and it's exciting to be a guest love having conversations about teaching and learning. Don't get enough of an opportunity to do that, I think. I I just absolutely get so energized by having these conversations. And one of the other things I'm actually realizing is very unique about you is in addition to teaching all three levels at the higher ed level, you taught high school. That's right. Yeah, I was a high school. uh, I actually started out as a theology teacher, believe it or not. Uh, But primarily, I taught uh, history and uh, U.S. and world history as a high school teacher. So and that's actually what I still do a lot of my uh, research and development work on and in my career now is in, in social studies and technology, that intersection. So really enjoy that and miss those days, but not enough to uh, leave my gig now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is there anything that comes to mind that you would want to tell people who don't teach all those varied ages and, and types of students that you think we're missing because we don't have that perspective? I guess the way I approach it, and actually it's connected with our topic today a little bit, is the idea that you kind of have to meet the learners where they are. And, you know, like our undergraduate population here at William & Mary, they kind of fit a particular profile. Um, You know, they're very academically distinguished. They're very service-minded, very global-minded. I try to keep those things in my head as I'm planning course experiences, preparing for discussions and so forth. Whereas, you know, a lot of times where I'm working with uh, master's and doctoral students that are experienced practitioners, they bring so much professional knowledge to the table that, you know, you have to kind of plan with that in mind. It's really important to think about sort of the experiences they bring, their orientation, and even in some ways like their developmental level, kind of what they're prepared for, what they're ready for. So I guess that's the... I enjoy all levels, but it's very different teaching an undergrad course and a doctoral course, as you can imagine. And it's not just the content. Actually, before we start to talk about universal design for learning, I cannot resist. In your bio, I have to read a few more things. (laughs) You are a Seinfeld aficionado, a rabid fan of all things Notre Dame, the proud owner of a miniature poodle, and you have a knack (laughs) for identifying the voice of narrators in movies, television shows, and commercials. Well, let's, we love starting out on the show talking about failures. Would you share about a (laughs) failure in your teaching that sort of sparked the idea for you that you needed something like universal design for learning? 
I feel like I learned so much more about how to be more effective in my teaching from things that go wrong. And I try to, you know, I work with a lot of times future teachers. So I try to teach them that, that look, you know, if you're not taking chances and, and mess things up or fail once in a while, you're not trying hard enough. And, and as long as you're able to learn from those experiences, you know, you're going to be better for it. And so for me, it was definitely a few years into teaching high school. I was um, teaching a U.S. history class and there was a, a student in the class named Tony who I had heard from previous teachers that, oh boy, this kid is a handful and, you know, it was going to be a struggle. And, you know, sure enough, uh, it was that way. You know, he was disengaged a lot of the time, head down on the desk or disruptive or, you know, I mean, just everything but kind of what we hope and expect our students to, to be in the classroom. And, you know, I, I, I tried to kind of reach out to him. He was involved in some outside of school activities. I tried to kind of show some interest in those, all of the things that you do to try to connect with students. But nothing really was working because I think he knew what I was trying to do. He'd had a bad experience in school, not because he wasn't bright, not because he wasn't smart, but he didn't really fit in our kind of our traditional notion of school. So, you know, it was a struggle. Uh, one day I happened to walk by his desk right before we let out class and I had delivered a scintillating lecture on uh, westward expansion, I believe, if memory <laughs> serves. You know, just like every day he'd been doodling in his book or, you know, uh, staring out the window or whatever. And I was struck as I walked by. I noticed his notebook. He tried to close it really quick before, you know, how they do as I'm walking by. And I realized that he had been drawing this really elaborate, almost like a mural in his notebook across both pages of his spiral notebook. And it was amazing. And I said, Tony, can I take a look at that? And I looked at it and he had been drawing doodles and pictures related to what we were studying, mm. related to westward expansion. And he had captured a lot of the ideas that we had talked about in probably a whole lot better depth and understanding than many of the students that were furiously taking notes as they were going. He just did it in a totally different format. I was stunned and I, I, I talked with him. I said, wow, you are so talented. You know, I talked with him about, wow, can, you know, is this, this is like the first time you've done this? And he started flipping through his notebook, showing me previous drawings he'd done. And so, you know, I realized it was such a light bulb moment. I'm like, I had totally missed the boat with this kid. He has been listening. He's been engaged probably again to a greater level of depth than most other students in the class that were maybe getting A's in the class. But I had no idea how to reach him. I had no idea kind of what his talents were and what barriers I'd put into place you know, unknowingly to sort of honor his strengths. Mm -hmm. And, you know, instead he felt like a failure and I felt like a failure in extension. Well, tell us a little bit about the definition of universal design for learning and how that brings you back to your memories of that experience you had teaching Tony. After that experience, I really tried to make efforts to get to know, you know, the, the kids that in my class and what their strengths were, what their challenges were. Tony produced a number of murals that I reproduced for every kid in the class when it came to time to study for the unit exams because, you know, I wanted to, again, to sort of honor his talent, but also help, you know, have the other kids in the class benefit from his way of conceptualizing the information. So I, from that point forward, I really tried to, in whatever way I could, try to connect with kids and honor what they were good at and give them options for how they could express their understanding or engage with the material. And years later, um, I came across the Universal Design for Learning or UDL framework. 
And that just articulated so clearly for me what I had sort of learned through practice about the importance of trying to connect with learners because we know with uh, uh, functional MRI testing now that you know people respond to information at a neurological level very differently from one another. Uh, that you know scientists have described it as people's learning patterns and 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 experience and strengths and challenges are as unique to that individual as their fingerprints. So that notion really struck with me and. I, so now I, I really, UDL gives, gives me a framework to, to think about that really systematically in my teaching. It's basically, it's connected to the idea of universal design for architecture, which is hmm. the idea that if you design a building with uh, people's needs in mind from the outset, whether they're maybe in a wheelchair or whether they need uh, braille uh, signage, you know, throughout the building or they need wide hallways, uh, you know, whatever the case may be. If you design the building with those ideas in mind, you're going to have a much more functional space, more aesthetically pleasing space than if you retrofit an existing building with ramps and, and uh, you know, elevators, uh, you know, that are connected to the stairwells and so forth. So the idea with universal design for learning is if you try to strategically think about learner differences as you're designing learning experiences and assignments, it's going to be much better than trying to retrofit those experiences for kids like Tony or students with different needs. So if you strategically think of the three different principles, how to represent the content in multiple ways, give kids multiple opportunities, give students multiple options for accessing the material beyond the textbook, perhaps beyond lecture, perhaps. Uh, if you give them multiple ways to express their understanding, again, beyond just the traditional essay or paper uh, or, or uh, you know, multiple choice, true, false exam and then multiple ways to recruit and sustain their interest in the material. So making it as, as authentic as possible, connecting it to um, other real world sort of scenarios or other disciplines, but finding ways to make that very engaging and interesting to them. If you think about those as you're designing your syllabus for a course and build in opportunities to hit diverse learners' needs in all those different areas, you're going to end up with a much stronger course and a better learning experiences for all of your students. Some of the time, the reaction to something like this can be, are we coddling our students too much? and Or are we lowering the expectations and not really preparing them well or, or giving them the skills they need? How do you address concerns like that? I mean, have you ever had those concerns yourself, actually, as you explore? Uh, it's funny you ask that question because that is the first question I always get from my pre-service teachers every semester, literally. And it's a very legitimate one because, you know, our idea is that we want to challenge students past the where they are right now to help them to grow in all different ways, you know, whether it's skills or understanding or connections, et cetera. So the way that I answer that question is that what we inadvertently do as teachers is put up barriers to what it is we want our students to to develop or come away with. So, for example, what I might be interested in is um, in students comparing and contrasting concepts. I just did a blog post about this recently. Um, what I'm really interested in them doing is identifying those key features of those different concepts, understanding, you know, applying a very deliberate, systematic way to compare and contrast those concepts to develop a new understanding. That might be my overarching learning goal for a particular class session or project. But 
if I put unnecessary constraints around that, like I might only introduce the two topics of uh, exploration through a textbook reading, that's an unnecessary constraint relative to my learning goal, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Or if, if the only way they can demonstrate their understanding of these two concepts and their relations to one another is through um, a five-paragraph essay, I've created an unnecessary constraint to that learning goal. So the way I would answer that question is that you really need to, to have a primary focus on what it is you want students to come away from that experience with. And you certainly don't want to mollycoddle them relative to that. You want to challenge them. And if that means removing some of the barriers that might get in their way, then I'm all for that. Now, that said, students still need to know how to do formal research papers. Students still need to do, um, you know, be able to, to work with a textbook and do close reading and so forth. So I, I wouldn't call it an either or situation. I would say that rather than having an entire course set up, with textbook, lecture, you know, papers to think about how can I vary that over the course of a semester where they're still maybe writing a term paper at the end, or perhaps they're doing that for their midterm. But in conjunction with that, there might be other assignments where they have options for how they're going to express their understanding. Does that make sense? It does. And one of the things that you're, you're really honing in on to me is how much we have to think about learning outcomes Mm. and what really is it that we are trying to measure. How else do you see universal design for learning coming into play as it relates to learning outcomes, assessment, and also just the course materials and activities? I agree with you 100% about the focus on learning outcomes. I, I wonder, you know, we're so tied to our disciplinary knowledge, you know, and we know what concepts and topics we want to introduce our students to, but sometimes we don't take that next step to say, well, well, what what do I want them to do with those ideas or those new that new information? And so that's where the, the outcomes come in. And in terms of the universal design for learning angle, the way I approach it, and I can share with you a little bit, I'm redesigning one course really with this as a central focus of what I'm trying to do in the class, is I'm really trying to unpack those and say, okay, if these are the topics and then I figured out my learning goals relative to those, then what I try to do is I try to think about, well, what, what do I know that students struggle with related to this, whether it's the, the topic itself or the way I want them to understand it. And then I try to think about, well, then what kind of options could I include to help them with that? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, for example, um, if we're doing something with looking at educational research, you know, I might, I'm still going to have them read some, you know, uh, published peer-reviewed journal article studies, but I'm also maybe going to have them look at some visual representations of data as well, because that's a very different way to look at that. And, And it often isn't included in our you know, professional journals. So I might be helping them to look at it from different angles. Um, and then I think the, for me, the bigger um, thing I try to challenge myself with is how am I going to know whether they've mastered that learning goal at the end? And again, thinking more broadly beyond just the, you know, the paper at the end of the class or whatever, to think about what are some other alternatives that I could either suggest or would be open to if students you know, would make a proposal for a different way to demonstrate their understanding. And that is, again, it's tied so closely to the learning objectives, because if you can keep that in the forefront, there might be multiple ways that students could demonstrate that. But it's only when you are looking at it through what you want them to take away that that might become apparent to you. 
If you're giving me as your student choice when it relates to course materials or activities, in terms of how that gets presented, does that mean I'm skipping over parts of it? And is there so, ever the temptation to skip over all of it? And Because there's certainly those students who just give me the bottom line. What's the definition you want me to memorize and sort of fighting against their desire to think that that learning is about memorizing definitions and regurgitating them back? It's increasingly difficult, I think. I've been teaching in higher ed for um, 12 years and then a few years before that as a, as a teaching uh, graduate assistant. And I've noticed a difference. And I, I think it's, you know, as an education person, I think it's related to the emphasis on the uh, standardized testing, you know, increasingly using standardized testing in schools from early grades all the way on up. I think we've conditioned kids to want to know what the right answer is because that's how they've been trained, essentially. That can be a real challenge. And it does take some time for students to get away from that idea that, you know, hey, there might be multiple ways to do this. So I have to try to do it with some modeling and um, to provide them with some choices. And some of them still are going to go for the traditional approaches. And that's fine if that, you know, if that's going to help them demonstrate their learning and that's where they're strong, then great. I just want to make sure that I give students that have different ways of expressing themselves that opportunity too. But at a concrete level, what I'll do is I'm a big believer in um, assessment rubrics tied back to the learning goals, of course. And so what I do is before I think about what options are, is I'll really try to carefully articulate what it is I want students to know and be able to do, then create the rubric based on those learning goals. What are the particular facets of critical thinking I want to look for or um, analytical thinking or whatever the case may be before I start to think about how could students demonstrate this? Then I'll think about, okay, well, what might be some possible options here? You know, the, a paper is typically going to be on the table. It may be an exam, although my, my classes tend to be more theory to practice. So it's more of an application kind of assignment. So I try to think about what are some ways they could demonstrate that. But the key is, and the students know this, the key is regardless of how they choose to do their work, they're going to be assessed using the same rubric. There's options in assessment. There's also options, it sounds like, in course materials. I might read part of the textbook and or I might watch a video and or I might go through some sort of interactive website that that emphasizes those same things. Is that, is that all, am I getting the first piece of it there? Absolutely. Yep. And then with the learning outcomes, I'm really considering how I can directly hone in on what's most crucial and leave out the rest? Does that, does that, uh, cause that, there's not as much choice when it comes to the learning outcomes, I would assume. Right. Absolutely. Yep. You're exactly right. Okay. Well, let's look yep. at the three areas. And you talked about universal design for learning helps us with engagement, how to engage our students. It helps us with having varied ways of representing things and then for action and expression. Let's, let's look at those three things, universal design for learning with engagement universal design with um, consideration of representation and universal design for action and expression. And maybe it might help us if you thought of a specific class and how these things come alive. Yeah, definitely. I, I think maybe the, the best way to illustrate is through a, a, a redesign class I'm going to offer this fall for the first time with, um, with really trying to be particularly conscious of modeling good UDL design. Um, and one thing I should say real quick um, is there, the UDL Center, udlcenter.org, 
has some amazing resources. Um, and I, I, Bonnie, I'll point you to a few particular things that you might want to include in the show notes, but they have these wonderful interactive ways to explore each principle in mm. depth to you can, where you can look at the research base behind that particular principle, um, different, uh, strategies you can use. So it's a really, really helpful resource that you can kind of drill down to whatever degree you want. But I'll, I'll try to illustrate it with an example, if that's okay. Oh, it sounds perfect. Okay. So one of the things that, um, in terms of engagement, the idea behind this is to try to make the learning as relevant and as interesting to the student as possible, because it's only through that sort of level of engagement that it'll both recruit their interest, you know, make them interested because, you know, especially if we teach a required course, it might not be necessarily, you know, the, the student's passion, but also it'll help them sustain that interest through some hard academic work. So, you know, it's not just for them to have fun, but it's, it's a way to draw them in so that you can get more out of them in an academic sense as well. So one of the things I'm doing with this particular class is um, this is for teachers that are trained to be secondary school teachers. So, you know, uh, in one of the different disciplines. And this course is on how you can integrate technology into your teaching. So one of the things that I'm trying to do is we know that what percentage of, of college students today either play video games pretty seriously or are into, uh, you know, like the, even the games in Facebook, you know, where you get badges for different things, or even, you know, if you use a Fitbit or some other activity tracker, you get badges for different achievements. That's such a part of like uh, our students' culture that I'm going to try to build the course around badges and experiences. Hmm. And that will both give them sort of a, it's kind of a, uh, a, a fun and motivating way where they can kind of measure their progress compared to some of their classmates. But it also illustrates the idea that um, there are, there are multiple ways to complete each assignment that you can still earn these achievements. I don't know if that makes sense. So for example, when they're reading about universal design for learning um, for the first time, I've, I've put together a collection of materials that they can choose how they want to learn about that initially. So there's some uh, textbook readings, there's um, some web-based um, interactive sort of hyperlinked readings with examples and video clips. There's a, a classroom simulator that they can, they can interact with to try to sort of uncover some of these principles in more of a um, inquiry approach. There are um, video clips and I've assigned sort of values to each of those. They have to accumulate a certain number of points, but they can choose whichever set of materials that they want to based on their own interests. I know because I selected them very purposefully that they're going to come away with the same understandings. They're just going to be able to choose how they want to do that. So it's engagement from that sort of game-like or gamification kind of process, but it's also engagement based on choice. One so if they the, feel like they're in control of how they're going to interact with that content, they're going to be more likely to engage with the material itself. One of the things you just turned on a light bulb for me that, because I am sure another concern is, oh, that sounds like a lot of work and, and work, not just in building it, of course, but also work in managing the class. But I'm, I use three different learning management systems and all three of the ones that I know of have the built-in ability to have this badge-like experience. Moodle and Blackboard and Canvas, all three have badges. I can't imagine that the other ones probably don't too. So we could build it where we have some thought process around how to track this as we go. That's exactly it. You Exactly. You can set up a, a course, you know, an assignment basically with those different options. It, the, the learning management system will calculate 
the points that they've done and they can only proceed to the next module or the next activity, you know, once they've accumulated that number of points. And they can be a quiz kind of at the end of that to make sure that they've really understood. Or it can be that you just want to track to make sure they've done it. You know, you can set it up however you mm -hmm. want. But but actually in some ways, I've found that when I've done this in small cases in different courses, that they tend to do the work more that way. But I can see that they're better prepared for class discussions or class activities. So while it is more time and effort to select multiple kinds of materials or resources, to me, it's paid back to me as a, as a faculty member when in class the students are more prepared and we can get right to it and we can go into further depth. So there's a cost on the front end, but I think it actually creates a better experience, even for me, on the back end. I can picture a, a desk or a whiteboard with all the sticky notes on it, sort of designing this as a choose your own adventure sort of thing where there you can kind of plan it. Oh, this is where everyone's going to wind up, but these are a couple different paths that they can take on their way or something. Yeah, exactly. And, and I and, and might develop this from going through a few different MOOCs and online courses myself. And I kept thinking, gosh, you know, it's like each module is set up the same way and the materials are always the same. Either it's always video or it's always reading, you know, and I think, gosh, I just for myself as a learner, I'd like some variation here. I mean, I do fine with it, but just in terms of staying motivated and those courses are ones typically that are, that are sort of the same way each module, I, are th those are the ones I don't complete. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of extrapolated that to my own teaching thinking, gosh, you know, if, if I were to mix it up a little bit more for my students, I, I bet they'd be better prepared. And so far, anecdotally, that's how it's worked out. That's a study that I'll be doing this year, though, to see when I really design the entire course that way, to what degree, you know, does it really make a difference? Tell us about representation and what that is and how it plays into your newly redesigned course. Yeah, I mean, that very simply, that's kind of what I described in terms of pulling together um, for that first day on, on universal design uh, is the, you know, readings, uh, video, interactives, all those things where they can choose. It's all basically covers the same topic, same content. They just have choices in the way they want to uh, engage oh, with okay. the material. Got it. So there's engagement, there's representation. And then there's, is there anything you want to add about action and expression? Yeah. So at, at the end of each of our little modules, I did basically what I described where I looked at the learning objectives, what I wanted them to, to know or be able to do related to that, created the rubric. And then what I've done is in the course for each project, I've given three different options, all assessed with the same rubric. So, you know, there's not redoing, you know, I'm not doing separate assessments for each option that students have. Uh, it takes a little more time up front, again, to sort of design those experiences. But uh, what, again, what I found in the past is that I see greater depth of work when students have some choice about how that they're going to convey their understanding. So students might do a really detailed concept map um, where they're uh, connecting different concepts and different ideas. Other students might prefer to, you know, to write a paper. Um, you know, I, I've had students do animations. I've had students do all different kinds of things. And when you open it up like that, I think you get much better work and you, you get a better, more accurate representation of what they really know. So it's basically giving them, you know, about three choices at the end of each module for how they want to do their work. Um, and I even will offer them the option to write a proposal for a different approach. Hmm. And students don't often take me up on that, but sometimes they do. And sometimes they offer really great ideas that then I incorporate for the next time I offer the course. So I try to give them those choices with how they can share what it is they know. 
We've had people in the past who shared about teaching techniques. The one that I'm thinking of is Peter Newbury, who talked about peer instruction. And as he described it, it was very much, you could start this today, put up a multiple choice question. And, and, and it seemed, and I shouldn't say it seemed, he described it as you can start this right away. This is not a, something you have to really build a lot of scaffolding to make this happen. And then there are some people who have described teaching approaches in the past where they say, this is one of those things, if you don't do the whole thing, you're not, you're not going to have success with that. I believe it was team learning, although I should have looked this up in advance to be <laughs> sure because there's so many different nuanced titles for these things. But I, oh, I think absolutely. it was, I think it was team learning was the one people were saying, yeah, don't try this unless you do the whole thing. Is this something I can dip my toe into and just get started today with a small piece of a class? Or is it really one of those things that it's going to work? It's really only going to work if I look at my whole class as universal design for well, learning. It's, absolutely. It's something you can dip your toes. In, in fact, this is what I teach my, especially my novice teachers. I say, like, don't try to do this with every lesson every day. I mean, that you're, that's the recipe for burnout. But what you can do as a, as a, you know, um, a college or university professor is think about, take a look at your syllabus and make sure for expression, for example, make sure if you have three major assignments, make sure that they're not all in the same format. So you might still keep your term paper at the end. You might keep a midterm exam in the beginning, but try to think about what could that third option be? What, what could it be? And so maybe you're not even giving students an option at the end of a unit of study, but you're giving options over the course of a semester. Mm-hmm. So maybe that third option is something maybe a little bit more creative or a little bit more um, applied or, you know, however you want to think about it, but just try to think about what are the major grades going to be for this course and how can I make sure that there is some variation among those. So that's a good way. And you might take, think about your, uh, looking at your concepts, your topics through the course of a semester, pick one that you know from past experience or you anticipate that students are going to struggle with and take that one and try to find a range of different materials just for that one topic and give students those materials and see if it makes a difference. And so I feel like absolutely. And then it's something the next semester you can go back and say, well, this was really effective as an alternative assignment or it wasn't. So maybe you keep it, maybe you switch it out for something else. Or, you know, you, you found it was successful to give students multiple ways to access that one particular uh, content topic. So now maybe I might pick a couple more during the course of the semester and really give, you know, multiple ways to, to get into that topic. So absolutely, it's the kind of thing you can kind of do by trial and error and do little by little looking at that semester long view is a much more accessible way to think about these things. And I would recommend to people just as someone doing a lot of course redesign this summer, let's not all start at the beginning of our courses because then the beginning of our courses are great (laughs) and the middle and the end end up suffering. And even the, if you start at the middle of some of your course content or at the end of some of your course content, you might find if you use that same technique, whatever it is that you're doing, then you can get better at it so that then the earlier ones can be that much more of a shining star as far as your course content creation goes. That's a great idea. I'd, I'd tack on one additional reason not to start with the beginning of the course. Sometimes it's helpful to establish a rapport with your class, you know, with sort of the tried and true before you go to experiment a little bit. So, you know, sometimes you, once you've established that relationship, you your students might be a little bit more forgiving if something doesn't go quite as well as planned. So sometimes I try to um, do innovations, you know, mid-semester. 
What have I not asked you about universal design for learning that we should make sure we talk about before we go on to recommendations? You know, your questions have been excellent. The only thing I can think of is that one common misconception is um, partly because universal design for learning was initially shared through the Center for Applied Special Technology um, at uh, either Harvard or MIT. I can't remember which, but I know in, in Boston there. Um, and so a lot of people associate universal design with technology. Mm. Well, technology helps you provide multiple representations, you know, like you can include video clips, you can even include interesting elements on your slides if you're using slides in class and, you know, to, to represent concepts in different ways. But it's not dependent upon and it's not synonymous with technology. So you can do universal design for learning very well without any technology at all. So, or you can use it and it does make it easier in many ways, like you were mentioning with the learning management system, kind of keeping track of those experiences and badges and so forth, but it's not necessary. So it is, it's an instructional approach. It's a way of course design that you can use without any technology or with any level of technology. Now I've heard people talk about universal design before and yes. un universal design I, is normally associated with just what you're describing where the online learning is something that can accommodate all learners. So if you've got a video clip, it has the a text, the I'm the CC, <laughs> keeps thinking creative close comments. Thank yeah. you. Close, close captioning available to it. So I, that's different than universal design for learning. These are two, two different things, but it sounds like they're somewhat related. Exactly. That's exactly how I, I characterize it. So they're, they're, uh, those, those are more like accessibility kinds of concerns and issues. But if you think about them, if you apply good accessibility practices um, where there's captions to images on web pages and there's closed captioning to video, it really is going to benefit multiple learners, um, just like offering choice in terms of readings or choice in terms of, um, you know, expression activities. So they're, they're related, but I would characterize them a little bit differently. This is the time in the show when we go on to recommendations, and I'm considering in the future maybe doing an episode entirely on using music in the classroom, even though I'm a business and management professor and it could hypothetically have nothing to do with my class, but I've had some really good experience with how music can change the tone of a classroom in, in really unique ways. So that's something I'm thinking about in the back of my mind, but I'm not ready to go there completely. But I did want to recommend if any of you are thinking about entering the world of Apple Music, which is the streaming music service just put out by Apple that now if you have a Mac will be on your iTunes on your Mac, it'll be on your iPhone if you have an iPhone or your iPad as soon as you upgrade. There are definitely some confusing things to entering this world that were made a lot less confusing to me by the Mac power users. So I'm going to recommend this week listening to episode 265 of the Mac power users that was all about Apple Music. And I, I'm actually going to recommend that my mom listen to it. So mom, if you're listening, you have to click on that link. Because <laughs> it, they did just, it's, it's, the show is called the Mac power users, but this is one of those ones that could be the Mac non-power users, and you could just find out how to use this service. And I'm really amazed at how I've been just having it on my phone for a couple of days, how it's gotten to know me and my music tastes because of some of the techniques I implemented from that show. And it's reintroducing me to music I already have that I didn't even remember I had. And then all these curated playlists from people out there that have a lot in common with me with my musical taste is just so much fun. So I'm going to recommend listening to that and that all of everything that Mark and I 
I have talked about, and the links will be available at teachinginhighered.com slash 58, including that link to the Mac Power Users episode 265 on Apple Music. Mark, what do you recommend today? It's a great tip. I can't wait. I love that show, and I haven't heard that episode, so I'm going to dive into that. Thanks. Um, I, I guess I would recommend if you're interested in learning more about universal design for learning, go to the UD, udlcenter.org. Great resources there. And now they have a, a, a branch of that site on called UDL on Campus, which is designed specifically for higher ed faculty and wanting to integrate UDL principles in their teaching. So that's a great, great resource. Um, all different kinds of uh, case studies and experiences you can use. Um, and then just one other shameless plug, I'd, I'd love for uh, folks, if you're interested in, um, in reading more and, and listening more about uh, teaching and learning in higher ed, uh, to visit my blog at luminaris.link. Wonderful. My autocorrect. And that's where you can listen to Bonnie on my show. <laughs> that's, my autocorrect keeps wanting to change that word, but I'll fix it in the show notes. Darn you, autocorrect. You messed me up too much. So luminaris.link, and it's a wonderful blog. I'm now subscribed to it on RSS, and every time you post, I think, ah, another good one. So I'm glad oh. that you suggested that. And I'll also post a link to your Twitter handle so people can connect with you there. And just want to thank you so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure, Bonnie. Thanks. Thanks once again to Mark Hofer for being on today's episode. It was a great conversation. I'm looking forward to revisiting some of my classes with Universal Design for Learning in mind and just becoming more familiar with the subject on all the, with all the references that you mentioned. Thanks so much. And for those of you who would like to give feedback on the show, you can do that always at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. And if you haven't yet subscribed to the weekly newsletter where you get all the links that Mark and I talked about, and you also get a accompanying article on teaching or productivity each week. You can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe, which will also get you EdTech Essentials, the free e-guide with 19 tools you can use to increase your teaching effectiveness and productivity. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.